Let us turn uh, in the Word of God to the, the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, and we're going to continue our verse-by-verse understanding, beginning with chapter 3. And I'd like to read verses 1 down to 6, just to kind of set the context as we enter into a new chapter this morning. The book of Hebrews. Raise your hand. Does everyone have a copy of the sermon notes? Yeah, okay. If you don't, just raise your hand and Nolan will get you those. I'm going to be referring to those from time to time. And so I encourage uh, little ones in the church, uh, get a Bible and uh, you can follow along with the rest of the church as we read God's Word. We're going to be at Hebrews chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, and we're going to read down to verse 6. Hear the Word of the Lord. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man, or this one, was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after the Christ, as a son over his own house. Whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of His Word. Well, I think it would be helpful for us as we're entering into a new chapter of the book of Hebrews just to pause and remind ourselves what is the overall purpose of this inspired letter, which really reads and it even teaches as if it is a sermon. The overall purpose be reminded today is to encourage these early Christians who were converted out of old covenant Judaism with all of its types and all of its shadows, which we learned about a little bit this morning in Isaiah 50, into or pointing them to new covenant realities which would later become known as Christianity. That's the purpose of this whole letter. This evangelist, this pastor, he's trying to encourage these early Hebrews who came out of Judaism to press onward and find complete fulfillment, rest, and security in the discovered realities that they now are being made participants of in a new arrangement, or we would say a new covenant agreement with God. Now up until this point in the letter, I have a little bit of introductory material to work through here. We're entering into a new section of the book of Hebrews. And up until this point of the letter, the inspired writer, he has spent much time in building up the divine nature of Jesus in chapter 1. If we reflect back on all the sermons and what we learned in chapter 1, it was really focusing on Jesus' divine nature. And then in chapter 2, there was an intense focus on Jesus' human nature. And now, having already articulated with very careful precision these fundamental truths of His divinity and His humanity, 
He moves on now in chapter 3, beginning with chapter 3, to construct an argument which helps these early Hebrew Christians and also us to understand the progressive nature of God's eternal redemptive plan to rescue sinful sons and daughters unto his family. So that's what is going to begin here in chapter 3, going all the way to chapter 12. He's going to begin to construct an argument to help them understand in um, panoramic view how God's redemptive eternal plan has come into fulfillment in their relationship through the Son, Jesus Christ. Now in the construction of this argument, it, it, it takes place in two ways. First, he's going to compare, as we're seeing a little bit today, a comparison between Jesus and Moses. That begins in chapter number 3 and it goes all the way to chapter number 4. That's the first leg of his argument to help these Christians understand what is at play here and what is transpiring in their very lifetimes. Now Moses, who during his earthly life, you ought to know, he was the Jews' revered prophet. He was the Jews' revered patriarch. He was the one that was especially chosen by God to mediate, or young ones, that means to superintend I'm going to use a word that I haven't used up in this point in this sermon series in Hebrews. Moses was chosen specifically by God to superintend the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant. Now look at your notes. What do I mean by this term that I've just introduced into this sermon series? Which, again, is going to be something that this pastor here writing Hebrews is going to use to contrast with what the Messiah, Jesus Christ, has done in a term we're later used called the New Covenant. Well, the Old Covenant, and the way we're using it moving forward, ought to be properly understood as an interconnected system of covenantal arrangements that God utilized for the purpose of pointing His people toward the promised Messiah that He announced in Genesis 3.15. And not only point them to the Messiah, but also to a new and a better covenant arrangement that this Messiah would establish with the sacrifice of His own life as prophesied in Jeremiah 31 and we were just reading in Isaiah. And so Moses was chosen by God to superintend this old covenant arrangement. And he superintended it in a very specific way. There were so many things that happened underneath this agreement, this covenant that God made with Moses to delegate him to be this superintendent to make sure that things are going to go forward in redemptive history and all the while point them toward the Messiah, point them outside of themselves to God's redemptive plan and the Messiah that he said he would bring. Well, that was the first part of his argument that he's going to construct from chapters 3 to 4. But there's another leg to his argument that he's going to use that's very significant. And that is to begin to compare, secondly, Jesus to the Arianic priesthood and the sacrificial system. As many of you probably know, was part of the daily life of the Jews while they were being superintended right, by Moses. So he's going to first contrast Jesus to Moses, and then he's going to contrast Jesus beginning in chapter 5 all the way to chapter 12 with the Arianic priesthood and that whole sacrificial system, which was embedded under the supervision of Moses with all of its laws. All of it had the main purpose of, as you see in your notes, 
the Arianic priesthood, all the sacrifices being superintended by Moses, making sure it's being done right. They worshiped God only as he prescribed. They wouldn't do anything against the rules. A lot of laws, a lot of legislation, etc., etc. All of it, we're going to see, served as a type or an example of sacrifice for sin and a priestly Messiah that someday would be raised up by God to remove the iniquities of his people once and for all. Now, where did we leave off with last week? As we know, chapter 3, we're beginning this new construction of arguments where the writer wants to engage our minds to understand and delineate what's going on in redemptive history, and especially in their time. What did we learn about last week when we left off uh, chapter 2 and verse 17? Well, we observed, didn't we, how the writer in harmony with some of the verses right there in chapter 2, as well as other texts in the Bible, he was pointing us, before we got into chapter 3, and before we start examining these other arguments, remember, do you, beloved, that he was pointing us to this concept of some sort of eternal plan, some sort of eternal agreement in the Godhead, uh, some sort of eternal covenant, which obligated Jesus to take upon himself a human nature, in order to be voluntarily sacrificed for the redemption of the electorate's church. Do you remember that? Well, if you recall, that was our very first time of ever mentioning that doctrinal phrase, the covenant of grace. Now, just to remind you, as you have in your sermon notes, what do we mean by this? We mean a concept or an idea of God the Father covenanting and agreeing with God the Son that by the Son's righteous life and obedience, we read about this morning in Old Testament reading, Isaiah chapter 50, even unto death that the Son would satisfy the justice of God against sinners and thereby rescue those who God eternally elected to save from eternal punishment. And if you recall, we looked at Ephesians chapter 1, we looked at Romans chapter 8 and some other descriptions to substantiate that. Now, our introduction... To this concept of the covenant of grace at the tail end of chapter 2 is very timely. Why? I want you to see this as we're transitioning to this new section of Hebrews and this new section of the argument that this pastor is putting forward. Because now beginning in chapter 3 and onward throughout the book of Hebrews, the writer will constantly draw our attention to the fact of how the former arrangements... That is, the former old covenant system through which God dealt with his people, they were all inferior to this overarching and this superior arrangement that he gave us a glimpse of in chapter 2, verse 17. Okay? You see it in your notes. Let me say it in a different way. While they are related, meaning the old covenant system, and this eternal redemptive plan we learned about in chapter 2, verse 17. How are they related? How are they related? God, we know in chapter 2, verse 17, with the Son, decreed a plan to save His church. It began and it was announced in Genesis 3.15. And then as we move forward, we have these other arrangements that are with man. You see it on the board there, on the bottom, representing a timeline of redemptive history. He made uh, an arrangement with Noah, and little Nene put that little bitty A there next to the N. She said, Dad, he also covenanted with the animals too. And if you read the text, she was right. We had to fact check that. She was right. 
But, but more importantly, for our purposes, this Old Testament covenantal arrangements that God made directly with men, He condescended down voluntarily and He made it with men. Remember, He made one with Abraham. He made another covenantal arrangement with Moses, who we're learning about a little bit today, we're seeing glimpses of, that included the Arianic priesthood. And then He made another covenant with David. The relationship between what we're saying, the Old Covenant, which, according to the definition I gave you, comprises as a system, all these temporal covenant arrangements that God made with men, the relationship is, they are all, as you see, the arrows pointing up to and outside of themselves to this eternal covenant that was established between God the Father and God the Son for one purpose, and that is to save His people. The Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, could never give eternal salvation. They could give many temporal, uh, temporal blessings, and in that way, they were, in a lot of ways, gracious. Uh, it was very gracious, wasn't it? For God to come and condescend down to Abraham and make him a particular father patriarch of a nation to be a blessing that would go out to many other nations. You remember, despite Abraham's floundering around many times and his own lack of faith and sometimes doubting God, lying, you know, about his wife and so forth and so forth. God was still gracious and still moving forward his redemptive plan. So there was a lot of aspects to these temporal covenants that comprise this system that I introduced you today called the Old Covenant that were indeed gracious. But beloved, remember, they all are, as you see in your notes, I believe I put it, they are all subservient to They are underneath. They are distinctly separate from the covenant of grace. Ah, but they're not so separated to where there's no relation. No, there is a relation. God's using them. He's using them as teachers. As scaffolding, building something that's much greater than themselves. And He's pointing them outside of themselves to the greater promise and reality. Now this is important. Because if we confuse this distinction, if we confuse these categories or conflate these two covenants, the old covenantal system and the covenant of grace, potentially, I underline that word potentially, it doesn't necessitate it, but potentially it could cause a person to miss out on the full impact and significance that the writer of Hebrews is wishing to convey to these early Hebrew Christians who, remember, still had friends, still had close loved ones and family members that were telling them, come back, come back to the old covenantal system. Come back. Look at what are you doing? You've, you've fallen into you know, some sort of deception. Oh, no, no, no. The writer of Hebrews is wants them to see. You're standing now in the reality of participation in the fulfillment of that great covenant of grace that was announced in Genesis 3.15 that all the prophets have been pointing us to. You have experienced the fulfillment of the better and the blessed new covenant, which is nothing less than the covenant of grace reaching its dawn. The sun has risen. And the writer of Hebrews wants them to see as he goes on, beginning with chapter 3 to chapter 12, don't conflate, don't confuse this blessed new covenant, this covenant of absolute free grace with any of those inferior covenantal systems, the old covenant. 
Well, to underline the significance of this argument that he's about, this is all introductory material to take us into this new section of Hebrews, to help underline the significance of what he's about to present for them. He wished for them to consider, verse number one, to consider and to grasp Christ as the grand priest and teacher of this better covenant. Consider Christ. Consider Christ. And that's what he's going to do now as he moves forward in this argument from chapter 3 over chapter 12. He's going to use Christ and he's going to say, Consider Christ. Consider Moses. Consider Christ. Consider all the priests of the Aaronic priesthood. Consider the sacrificial systems. Consider Christ. And he's going to show, Oh, don't you dare be tempted to go back to that old covenant system. No, what you have in Christ is indeed better, better and new. Well, verse number one is the doorway in which we have to open up and go through to begin to explore these arguments for the next several sections of the book of Hebrews. And so today I propose to you that we simply look at verse number one because I had a lot of introductory material to help you give, to give you a roadmap, right? To kind of understand where we're about to go and, and what's going on in the doctrinal arguments of the writer, right? So here we're going to go with just verse number one under three simple headings. We'll spend most of our time in the first two and then um, give a little bit of consideration to the last one which sets us up for verses two through six next Lord's Day. Well, the first heading is going to be, we see the dual description of this audience that he's writing to. Our second heading will be the central admonition of the verse. Indeed, it's the central admonition for the whole section of this book of Hebrews, which is to consider. And then the object of our consideration will be our third heading. Let's consider the dual description here in verse number one of this audience that he's writing to. The writer of Hebrew begins this portion of his letter with the same sort of language that's very familiar to us. He was using it a lot in chapter number 2. You remember in verse 11, he was referring to them as sanctified. Verse number 13 in chapter 2, he was referring to them as children of Christ. Verse 17, he identified as those who would be reconciled by the death of Christ. And this further identifies his audience as those who have been called and separated apart for God's purposes. That's what he's doing in verse number 1. He calls them in the first description as holy brethren. Now this is a term that's clearly communicating to people who possess not just a temporal, physical relationship to one another. These are holy brethren. These aren't just family members, right? Cousins. No, it's someone who has said themselves... I have come to embrace the truths of chapter number one and the truths of chapter number two. And therefore, as we stand united in this family of God, we are brothers. We are brothers. We are true Christians standing next to one another. And it will be evidenced, as we will see, and as we read this morning in verse number six, that not only is Christ the builder of us as his house, and we are his house, if, if we hold firm to the hope and the rejoicing until the end. And so our brotherhood, our spiritual kinship to one another is evidenced, brothers and sisters, by our perseverance. By our perseverance. Now, 
I have in my notes here to share with you, this doesn't necessarily mean that the writer of Hebrews has, as you see in your notes, a naive assumption about who he's writing to. In other words, by using this term and identifying them as holy brethren, the writer doesn't place beyond question the true spiritual condition of the individuals who comprise this group. But he does call them holy brethren. But notice the caveat, verse number 6, if you hold firm to the end, right? So with that said, we have to understand he's not making a naive presumption as if he can be a discerner of men's hearts and say, I announce you a holy brother. Some of them may yet prove themselves to be apostates. And that's why you will hear many admonitions going through the book of Hebrews, right? However, here in verse number one, he is addressing them as if they were truly his holy brethren. He speaks to them in what I would call optimistic persuasion. Optimistic persuasion. I'm going to think the best of you. I persuaded the best of you. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt because you are confessing the truths of chapter number one and chapter number two. Um, I know you're struggling. That's why I'm writing this sermon. You're struggling with a little bit of temptation. But I'm going, to, I'm going to think better of you. And so I know that there is not a naive assumption because you see in your sermon notes, look what he says to him in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9. After he outlines some things of the gospel that they were, it appeared to be, it appeared to be that they were kind of teetering on. Listen to what he says in chapter 6, verse 9. He says, Ah, but beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation or things that ought to go along with someone who says that they've been given that salvation. What's he say? We're persuaded better things of you. So he's not naive to the fact that potentially there could be false converts amongst them who will drift back into the old covenantal system and thus not persevere, and thus we're never really truly holy brethren. He does not presume that they are truly His brethren, nor presume that they're not. Instead, He gives them the benefit of the doubt, all the while He's setting up for them as if it were signposts or landmarks, as He does in verse number 6, landmarks and signposts for them to read and to them to see so that they could qualify themselves as holy brethren. Right? So he, he recognizes them and gives them the benefit of the doubt. But lest he build in their minds a false security, he holds up the sign, doesn't he, in verse number 6. and says, if you persevere with hope and rejoice firm unto the end, you're my holy brethren. Now, why am I hovering on this point? Well, beloved, because this is a good balance for us in the church of God. How many times if... Maybe you've witnessed or you've heard this lackadaisy approach about conversion in the house of God. There's a sign-up sheet in the Sunday school class, you know, where if you want to be saved, sign up and you'll get baptized this Sunday. And then the little one is given the presumption that, yeah, you got your ticket into heaven. Pastor signed the front cover of your Bible and you're patted on the head and you're told that you are saved. You're a holy brother. Oh, okay. Well, if you're going to take that step and go that far with it, Oh, will you please also preach faithfully the Word of God to where that person being brought up in a gospel church is given the the signpost and the landmarks so that the Word of God is presented as if it were an x-ray before them and they don't have all through their lives this false understanding, a false conversion of something that never occurred. 
What I'm trying to say is what we have here before us in verse number one, understanding in connection with the record book, the rest of the book of Hebrews, calling them holy brethren, is a good balance and practice for us as the sons and daughters of God, communing with one another in the church. We want to encourage one another in the faith. Amen. But when someone's going off astray, hold up the signpost. Hey, <laughs> your thinking, your actions, those poisonous berries you're trying to tempt everyone else to feed upon, it kind of is evidencing that you're not one of the holy brethren. Amen? Well, a further demonstration of what I like to call his optimistic presumption about them, this audience, is he calls them partakers of the heavenly calling. Now, it's helpful for us to know that this word in the Greek that's translated in our English Bible, calling, it can refer to a designation such as a a job designation, you know, that's your position, that's your designation. You're a Christian, that's your designation. It's, a, it's, a, it's an office, you hold it. So it can kind of mean that. It's translated that way sometimes, you see in, in, your, in your notes. It was only translated one time that way over in Ephesians 4.1. But the same Greek word is translated uh, predominantly as an inward effectual calling. And building upon what he's largely dealt with in chapter number 2 of how these individuals are described as those who confess that they're the sons of glory by God and His redemptive work through His Son Jesus and those who are described, as I said before, children of Jesus, I would prefer to take this to mean that he is identifying them and kind of putting up in front of them again, you say that you are a professor and a confessor of someone who has received that internal calling. In other words, I'm giving you the assumption that you're my holy brother because you say you align yourselves with everything that I said in chapter 1 and 2 that has really happened in your life. In other words, this isn't just a mere religion, a new creed for you, right? And that comes forth a little bit more later on in the verse. So in other words, they have only been made recipients of what chapter 2 speaks about, they confess, by God calling them and doing a work in their hearts. They've received a heavenly calling. At least they confess that this has taken place. Well, now we come to the second heading, which really sets the tone for this entire section now of chapter 3 through chapter 12, where he, ha- he lifts Christ up, in contrast to Moses and then Aaron. Look at your Bibles. He says, Holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider, consider the apostle and the high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Look at your sermon notes here. This word, consider, it is the central admonition, the chief admonition all throughout this next section. It carries with it the idea to apply one's mind diligently to something, to weigh something carefully, and to reflect deeply upon it. He uses it wonderfully in Hebrews 10.24, as you see in your notes, when he's talking about the importance of us thinking and pondering the welfare of one another. Let us consider diligently think about, weigh carefully, reflect deeply upon one another. 
to provoke unto love and to good works. Um, What's he doing there? Well, he's just trying to stress the fact of how they're going to need one another in this new covenant community and relationship that has everything coming and pressing upon them from every side. Uh, This mere trifle, distant relationship stuff just don't cut it when that type of persecution comes along, does it? Does it? And he wants them to know that. You consider, you take very seriously, weigh carefully this relationship you have with one another. Now this admonition is significantly presented right here in verse number 1. Because having already dealt with the correct understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, chapters 1 and 2, and prior to moving forward with contrasting Him to the old covenant economy of Moses and Aaron, it's going to require on their part, remember what consider mean, to apply one's mind diligently. That's what the word means, to think seriously. Before he moves into these arguments that he's going to uh, take them into, it's going to require on their part the use of their God-given mental faculties. It seems as though significantly here, right here at verse number 1, where he puts forth the central admonition, understanding the word, to apply one's mind. It seems as though these particular early Christians, like ourselves, need to be exhorted to avoid mental laziness. Now, I say mental laziness because that's clearly the idea behind the rebuke he gives them in Hebrews chapter 5. Look at your sermon notes, Hebrews 5, 12, 14. There he corrects them, why? For their slothfulness in learning and then failure to apply the biblical doctrines that he previously taught them, right? So here he's telling them, you you need to wake up. I, I know it's hard, we've... We've been eating a lot the last couple of weeks for holiday get-togethers. Oh, but, 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 but love it. Consider. Apply your mind. I'm about to present to you some holy oracles from God that transcends anything you've ever heard. So you'd better plug in and engage mentally in what I'm going to tell you. He rebuked them, you remember, as I suggested. You look in your notes there, Hebrews 5, 12-14. When the time ye ought to be teachers, well, you can't be a teacher unless you've learned some things, right? You've used your mind to grasp and ascertain and ask questions and educate yourself. When you should be teachers, you have need that one teaches you again, which by the first principles of the oracles of God and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. Verse 13, he said there, for everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness. They have not been learning. He is a babe. He goes on to say in verse 14 of chapter 5, but strong meat belong to them that are full of age, even those who by reason of use, there it is, reason of use, they are what? Considering. They have been considering. They've been applying their mind. They've been weighing diligently. By reason of use, What's it say? Have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now with this admonition to exercise our minds in a responsible way, we are all to be what the Bible calls Bereans. Who did you see in your notes? Acts 17, 11. How were they found? Well, they were found more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness, look church, of mind. 
Doesn't that describe verse number one today? What he's admonishing us to do? To use our minds? To engage mentally? Use by reason of use and faculty the truth that he's about to present? They were, the Bereans that is, we see to finish the passage, were receivers of the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Now we mustn't miss this relevant fact that this admonition here to consider reason of using one's mind to take up our minds in its fullest exercise in a willingness to be tested by the word of God exercise and consider our minds and having a desire to search out all the arguments until being satisfied they have honestly exhausted all the resources contained in Scripture and secondary resources. This admonition, dear church, we can't miss the fact, proceeds the overall thrust of this passage which is remain firm unto the end. He says that in verse number 1 before he says anything, admonishing them to remain firm. Why do I think that that's significant? Why do I think it's relevant? The admonition to consider comes in the midst of those who are in a state of temptation and possible spiritual backsliding into the old covenant. And thus, recognizing the placement of that admonition and understanding the context of the entire surrounding situation, we can rightly deduce that there is a direct link between careless, lazy, slothful approach to the truth that Christ sets forth in His Word and the means and the method by which He saves His people and spiritual backsliding. I think that that's a valid deduction from the placement of the consideration and the following admonitions and warnings that come afterward. If one believes, in other words, that he or she can be careless, indifferent to, or with a mere occasional glance concern themselves with particulars of doctrines, particulars of the teachings of the Word of God, and the demands that the Gospel places upon their own lives, then rest assured, beloved, what I'm presenting for you is, is you can be rest assured that there will be spiritual backsliding. If a person believes that they can kind of flow to church, just believe whatever the pastor says is true, they're not like the Bereans in the Word, testing, reason of use, examining, readiness to learn, all but holding the Word of God and studying it for themselves. Rest assured in the house of God where there is such a slothfulness in the use of consideration of one's mind that God gives us and How many times have we heard the blessed realities of people who don't have any kind of education become converted and the next thing you know they're some of the smartest people we ever meet. We learn about the farmer who has a a fifth grade education he becomes converted he starts writing books and you know etc. etc. God gives us the use of our minds as the people of God to test all things to consider all things by His Word. What do we mean by spiritual backsliding? Well, by backsliding, I'm of course referring to a season of increasing sin and decreasing obedience in the lives of those who profess to be Christians. So with that, and not a readiness with that, but not that as a test to look at all evangelicalism, modern day churches, even though we could, let's not be too careful to excuse ourselves, amen? 
But, but, but can this possibly be what's going on? Can it be we got these really fluffy principles and we just don't want to go any deeper than that? And we're, 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 we're afraid to unpack Romans chapters 8 and 9? We're, we're, we're concerned about looking at Ephesians 1? Oh, well, you know, because if we really teach you know, some of these doctrines, well, you know, it could ruffle some feathers and possibly cause disunity in the house of God. That is not at all what we're reading about in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. He is telling us to consider Christ, consider Christ everything we learn in chapter 2 about this eternal redemptive plan, this elective plan, right? This decreed plan. And in chapter 1, you consider that in the moment you don't, the moment you let Christ, all of Christ, fall to the wayside in your consideration, rest assured, you will not persevere unto the end. You will not persevere. You will not hold firm the hope And you definitely won't hold firm the rejoicing. You have a truncated consideration of Christ. That's what we mean by spiritual black-siding. A season. And it could be a long season of increasing sin amongst God's people and decreased obedience to Him in their lives. It usually begins when believers allow themselves to drift from the truth of Christ's words. And in particular, the consideration of His Word and the authority He has over their churches and their lives. And what happens, beloved? We're so easily settled. We can become settled and comfortable in thinking that we've said a prayer. We have the salvation ticket into heaven. And now we can practice the faith, the Christian faith, in a way that suits our own personal tastes and desires. These sorts of professors... I think, are portrayed wonderfully in John Bunyan's famous little book, The Pilgrim's Progress. I couldn't remember this fellow's name. I remember it was a conversation that Christian had with someone who professed to be a Christian, but they would only take and consider Christ and His teachings in their lives according to their own taste and desire. That's how they wanted religion. Well, I've given it to you in your notes. His name was Mr. Byans. I had to look it up. I couldn't remember his name. You remember the comment that Mr. Byans made in that precious book? You see it in your notes. He said, yeah, I'm for religion. I'm for religion in what and so far as the times and my safety will bear it. Right? What's he doing there, kids? He'll say, yeah, I'll be a Christian in so much as I can bear it or it fits my own tastes. Others, he said, now he's talking to the, about the true Christians. Others, well, they're for religion even if it demands rags and contempt. Don't you know, beloved, the doctrines that we teach in this church, which are the blessed, truthful, gospel truths of Christ, eternal salvation, the reformed doctrines of the faith, you know that they're held in contempt by a vast majority of those who say that they're Christians. What's Mr. Bayan say about us, guys? Look, others are for religion, even if it demands rags. And contentment, but I, oh, I, I'm for religion when he, when he walks. Here it is. This is what I, I never forgot this. He walks in silver slippers and in the sunshine and what? With much applause. Well, to compound the problem of spiritual backsliding even more is that there are number, there is a numberless host of teachers, both on the internet and off the internet that will usually confirm in some way or another the wayward 
professors' desires and how they want to think and practice their religion and their Christianity. They don't want to consider fully, exhaustively, mentally engage what Christ proclaims about His gospel and the, and the commands and, and, and the things that He has under the gospel for their lives. No, no, no. They'll go find a teacher that says, oh, well, you don't have to consider Christ. Quite that's so detailed. You don't have to consider Christ and the, and the meanings and the intricacies of the gospel and the biblical truths in that detail of a fashion. No, no, no. You, you see, you're, you're going to end up in contempt or rags if we do that. And they'll find someone who agrees with them and will tell them what they want to hear. And while being quick to hear the voice of others that will speak their own language, they're reluctant to take serious consideration of what the Word of God has to say about matters. God forbid, church, that we ever come to a place being admonished by this inspired writer to consider Christ and all that it means in Christ. God forbid that we run to the internet or to rerun to another man before we don't come to Christ in His Word. Don't you ever come to a crossroads and seek an understanding of something and first go hear what a man has to say. Plunge yourself into Christ's Word first and then by all means, once you have exercised your mind, you've prayerfully considered right through the means of grace and understanding of what you believe the Word of God says, then yes, go talk to your brothers. Say, listen, this text either means three things, right? Or two things. It's either this or this. Am I missing something? Right? Sadly, such professors who have fallen into the ditch of backsliding, not considering Christ as the admonition is set forth, they make the dreadful mistake that the Apostle Paul warns about, as you see in your notes in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. They measure themselves by themselves. And they compare themselves among themselves. And he says, what in the text? You have it in your notes. They are not wise. Thereby, they slip away gradually, sometimes imperceptibly. One weakness will lead to another. One thing's tolerated in the church over another. And the things of this temporal world become more important, as Mr. Byan said, applause and sunshine to the house of God than the very truth of Christ Himself. That's what happens. And it's imperceptible. We have such good intentions. Who doesn't like applause? <laughs> there was no sunshine this morning coming to church, but you would have liked a little sunshine, wouldn't you? But beloved, truth matters above all. We must consider Christ. Why? Because backsliding reaps bitter results. It injures God's holy name and His worthy name. It makes us spiritually numb so that our conscience becomes desensitized. It results in the church's overall decay and, as in our text today, can be a major contributing factor to holding firm until the very end. So we must avoid it at all costs. When someone's trying to sell something to the church that's not rooted in the Word of God, you have a responsibility to consider Christ in His Word and bring it to the forefront to the body of believers that are around you. Now, Galatians 6.1, I, I have to add this. You, you give this admonition to people sometimes and you have to always follow it up. You know, 
you, you, you do it with a spirit of gentleness and meekness, but you do it firmly and you do it with respect to one another. All right? Let's move on. Let's move on to our last consideration, which brings us very close to the end of our message today. And that is to consider Christ. Obviously, Christ is the object of the consideration. So you got this big admonition to consider because it has this disastrous consequence if you don't consider that could potentially jeopardize your perseverance in the faith with all these other side effects that are so decaying and harmful to the church. Well, who's the object of that consideration? I've mentioned it several times under our second heading, but our third heading, we have to see it's clearly Christ, he says at the end of the verse. He says, consider the apostle and the high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. The object of our consideration that's intended to help us maintain our perseverance and not get off track, we see is Christ Jesus, who is described as the apostle and the high priest. This dual description of the object of our consideration. Now before we deal with or look at very briefly this dual description of Christ, notice the phrase of our profession In some of the translations, it's a good translation, says our confession. Well, what's meant here? Does the writer mean, as I mentioned this a little bit earlier, does he mean your profession to an objective fact that's listed in a church creed? Or, in the Greek, it can mean also, does he mean an internal personal truth? Something that's subjective. Something that you say, I own Him. He is mine. Well, in the immediate context, to impress upon us the urgent need of giving diligent consideration to the personal profession of the work of Christ, and it's occurred in our lives, I prefer the interpretation that what he's saying here is... You say, I profess, I own, I confess the personal application of the salvific work of Christ described in chapter 2 to my own life. This is my profession. I confess, I receive this admonishment to consider Christ. I will do it. He He has saved my soul. We sung it in that rendition of Psalm 53. When He is redeemed you or He's restored you, you give Him the grace and Him the grace alone. Amen? I like how one faithful commentator paraphrases this. Quote, You profess to personally have been called and now trust and follow Jesus. Then, continuing the quote, think hard, think soberly on who He really is and what He really did for you and what He continued to do for you as your Apostle and High Priest. This sort of call to own a personal confession, not a mere set of religious creeds, comes through wonderfully how this Greek word is elsewhere used in the New Testament. Look in your notes. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. Whereunto thou art also called and hast professed, there we go, a good profession before many witnesses. Now, is he just talking about an external uh, adherence to a creed? You're right? No, no, no. I give thee charge in the sight of God, 
who quickeneth all things. And before Christ Jesus, he brings Christ into the picture now. Who before Pontius Pilate, what? Witnessed a good confession. Same word. That thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, I believe that here modeling the example of Jesus before Pontius Pilate and facing impending death, the writer wants us to understand we can only hope to hold fast in verse number 6 to the profession of our faith in the face of very real martyrdom if we've only experienced the application of Christ's salvation to our hearts. Going back to our New Testament reading, that's the only way that John the Baptist gladly laid his neck down there for Herod's wicked men to sever it off. Why? He didn't flinch because he professed Christ. He confessed this gospel, this regeneration, the application of the courage and the strength. John the Baptist confessed Christ as his apostle and his high priest. That's why I believe that that's what this was talking about. Here's why. Because no mere consent to a religious creed will equip you with the type of profession Paul is speaking of in 1 Timothy. Only by a spiritual opening of a sinful heart to the ill-deserved love and mercy of God through His Son Jesus will one ever be inseparably, inseparably united to Christ even if that union with Christ would require their very own death. And that is one of the most blessed realities of the Christian life. Being unified by faith with Christ no matter what afflictions, no matter what trials, no matter what harm may come even to your neck. It's by a spiritual birth saying, I confess, I know Him. I own Him. And He will be with me even in the shadowy times of death. I profess, I confess Christ. You will need that, friend, when and if ever that time comes so that you won't flinch. You won't bat an eye when someone perhaps is holding a revolver to your head or John the Baptist's case, a sword to his neck. You will say with a smile, Christ is my all in all. I confess Christ. Oh, I pray that every single one of us would have that boldness. It's easy on Sunday to say that, isn't it? It's a much different thing when you're over in the Middle East and they've drugged you out of your secret meeting out in the streets. Are you going to be, young ones, a John the Baptist? Are you going to be a Cranmer who's going to, 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 to recant every time he made a mistake and he says, I confess Christ. I confess Christ even if it brings death. I pray that God would give you the courage. He would give all of us the courage to profess and confess Him to the very end. Well, let's enter a little closer to the end of our time together. Just by giving an introductory thought to this dual description of Christ which sets up Verses uh, 2 to 6 for next week. Christ as the object of our preserving consideration, our persevering consideration, is described here as the apostle and the high priest of our personal profession of Him. The bearing that this will have upon what now follows in the book of Hebrews is that His role and His work as an apostle is the subject of the focus from beginning with verse number 2 all the way to chapter 4, verse 16. 
And then his role as a high priest will dominate the central focus of chapter 5 and verse 12. And so he elevates those two old covenant offices before our minds here as we end our time. And he's going to pick up the comparison of Christ against Moses as an apostle or it could be translated as a teacher in our next time together. Consider this application, beloved, as we walk away today from this doorway into the new section of Hebrews. By focusing upon these two important and functional offices during the Old Covenant, the writer will begin to compare them to Jesus and convincingly, when he's all said and done, demonstrate to these early Christians who came out of Judaism that through Christ and His fulfilling of the covenant of grace over the Old Covenant, the former economy, which is no longer in effect, and it now is indeed passing away, And Christ is better. Christ is better. That's the application, beloved, that we can make at the end of this message. That as we consider all of these things that we've said, Christ and His truth have to be considered by us, weighed by us, owned by us to the very end, despite applause, despite rags and contentment, even unto death. So I ask you, are you willing to consider Christ no matter the cost and what we've said today. Let's bow with a word of prayer. Holy Father, thank You, O God, for the time that we've been able to spend to explore the different nooks and crannies of Your Word, Lord, and what You have hidden in it to bring to the surface before our consideration. We thank You, O God, that, Lord, in Christ... In the considering of Him, we truly, Lord, are blessed far more than any of the former types and shadows that those who lived during that time could have ever realized. Lord, while the essence of our faith is the very same essence of faith as Abraham, oh, do we see a much more clearer picture. And we bless You for that. We thank You for that. Because in the moments of our own weakness, it helps us. It strengthens us. It is an added foundation block to the reassurance of your gospel and how you brought it to pass throughout redemptive history. Lord, I pray that you would help some of the things we spoke about today to be used to strengthen your church, not to strengthen all of the Mr. Buy-ins in the visible professing world of Christianity. But Father, to strengthen those who Mr. Bayan said have uh, settled for, they have, dear Lord, owned rags and contentment for the true consideration and proclamation of Christ. Strengthen them, O God. Help them. Let them see that they are on the right path of following their Savior as He is revealed in the Word. We bless You, O God, and we thank You. And We are just so humbled to have the opportunity to come and to worship together on your special Lord's Day. May you be, O God, edified in our hearts, exalted in our thoughts, and, O God, loved and cherished by us for your eternal redemptive grace in Christ as we approach your supper. It's in his holy name we pray. Amen.